Hey, Josh. How you doing this week, Nate? I'm doing pretty good. My uh, my wife's battery died in the car last night when she was out shopping, so had a bit of a hectic night last night, but otherwise we're doing all right. Okay. How are you? Cool. Uh, pretty good. Uh, kids are in camp this week, so that's been a nice, uh, a nice, I don't know, it's quiet here, which is good. <laughs> so... Um, but today we do have a special guest. Uh, I know we've done a couple interview episodes and we like to do these kind of once a month. It seems to be the routine. So uh, we have a special guest and friend, uh, Michelle Hansen. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So Michelle is the co-founder of Geocodio, a podcaster and recently published author. Uh, today we're going to learn a bit more about her backstory and what led her to write Deploy Empathy, a practical guide to interviewing customers. Um, and after that, Nate and I will dig in a little further with more specific questions about her book. Uh, but before we get started, I did want to try an experiment. Um, I want to call this experiment Consider the Source. It might be a new segment, who knows, out of uh, our, our interview. Um, but I always find in general, it's nice to have advice from guests and things like that, but it also is helpful to be contextual on what they believe, what they don't believe. Um, it should be pretty simple, but I hope uh, I hope it goes well. But here, here's kind of the general rules. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Uh, most of the questions are a choice between two answers, and you can always answer both or it depends. So <laughs> not a big deal <laughs> if you're kind of, some of them might be more polarizing than others. Uh, and at the end, you'll also get an opportunity to expand on any answers you provided. Okay, but I am allowed to answer, it depends, maybe, or none of the above. Sure. Yeah, you could do that. <laughs> uh, or, or you could even say both. I like them both. Whatever. It's fine. It's not Porcato meant to. Los Dos. There you go. So, <laughs> all right. And, and the framing for all of this is in B2B SaaS, since those are most of our listeners, hopefully, <laughs> in searching for SaaS. But in B2B SaaS... Co-founder or no co-founder? For me personally, co-founder. Uh, being co-founders with my husband is basically my dream job. So um, I love it. But for some people, it may make sense to do it on their own. Cool. All right. Uh, build a team or stay small and mighty? Again, for us, um, we love working together. So we are, uh, I guess we are small and mighty, um, but for some companies and contexts uh, and, and leaders, it makes sense to have a team. Okay. Uh, what to do first, build an audience or build a product? I would say none of the above. <laughs> right. I know what Arvid would answer. Uh, and I know what Michelle of 10 years ago would have said, which is build the product. Um, I would say find a problem first. Okay. And right. then I feel like both building an audience and building a product both come out of solving a problem and knowing that what you're solving is a problem. Okay, cool. A hundred percent self-funded or funding can be an option. For us, we have been able to go the route of self-funded or as, as I would say, sort of customer funded because we, you know, we, we didn't like pour our own capital into this because 
we did not have our own capital to pour into it. Um, but again, for a lot of companies, you know, it makes sense to go raise money, especially, you know, I, I saw something the other day that was like building factories and warehouses in space. And I was like, yeah, they need funding. Like, right. I, like, I don't know how you could build that without funding. Yeah, that's um, pure, pure CapEx is going to yeah. probably be like, yeah, yeah, you can't just bootstrap and customer fund. I don't know, unless you get some really creative financing stuff with customers, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. And we're definitely, I mean, we, you know, we invest in Calm Company Fund, like, you know, we're, we're definitely supporters of businesses that need funding to get off the ground, but that just hasn't been the route we've needed to take with Geocodium. Cool. Okay. And the last one, it's a fill in the blank, but a founder has to be blank. Flexible. Okay. Cool. Mm. Um, I would ask, I did have at the end to ask if you had anything else to add, but you seem to explain your answers well, which was worked out well too. So um, I think that was... I think that was fun. So I now, do not think I gave any yes or no answer. <laughs> right, I, I, you probably could have blanketed it all with it depends, but I think that's also what I love about you. I think it's great as you always have a a pragmatic like, hey, these decisions are you know for individuals, for themselves, for the founders themselves to make, and everyone kind of has their their thing. So context matters, and yep. I mean, I guess given you know what I write about and stuff, you you would not be surprised for to hear from me that context matters. Right, right. So uh, now getting started into the proper interview part out of our weird uh, Josh phase of consider the source, uh, we will go into my first question, which is, can you tell us a little bit more about how Geocodio got started and where it is today? Yeah. So Geocodio came out of a need we had ourselves. So we, in, in about 2012... We launched, 2013, we launched a mobile app to help people find grocery store and convenience store and coffee shop hours near them. Um, It was called Open Nearby, and basically the idea was you could pull it up and it would show you a map of what's open near you. So, for example, if you needed milk at midnight or a coffee at 3 a.m., you could just pull it up and it would show you what was open. Now, right now, you can go into Google and type in, you know, Harris Teeter hours or whatever, and it'll like pull up or grocery store even, and it'll pull up all of the stores near you and show you which ones, like what their hours are, who's open, all that kind of stuff. But in 2012, it didn't. You had to know, okay, there's a Harris Teeter near me. Let me go to their website. Let me go to their store locator. Let me type in my zip code. Let me find the hours. And then if they were closed, then you have to like start all over again with Safeway. Um, And, you know, if you, you know, run out of diapers at one o'clock in the morning, you don't really have that kind of brain power or time. So, um, so we launched um, Open Nearby. um, And the, uh, and it was, it was going well. um, And we were, you know, had a couple hundred dollars in ad revenue a month, but we ran into a problem. And so we were the, the, um, when you open the app, it showed a map. And in order to show the map, you have to have geocoding, which turns the address into coordinates so that a computer can understand it because a computer does not understand an address and only understands the latitude and longitude coordinates. And at the time, you could get 2,500 free lookups of, of those coordinates per day from, from Google. Um, and there were some really strict caching requirements, still are or limitations rather. So you couldn't just store them in your database and get them once. You had to like be continually refreshing. 
Um, and we ran into this problem where we had like 3000 stores in the app. And so we're like, what are we going to do? Like we can get (laughs) 2,500 for free or we can get an enterprise contract for like a hundred thousand a day for like, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 a year. And we're like, that's like, we need something in between free and tens of thousands of dollars a year. And there wasn't anything. So um, we ended up building a very rudimentary geocoder. Um, and as we kind of like mentioned this to friends of ours, um, they'd be like, oh, like we have the same problem. Like, you know, what? have you guys have just thought about like, you know, slapping a paywall in front of this, like making it an API and then like maybe other people will like offset the server cost so that it'll be free for you. And we were like, heck yes. Like. We've just gone from potentially having to pay tens of thousands of dollars to having like other people pay us like, you know, 30 bucks a month to cover the servers. Like, awesome. We can keep our app going. Um, This is great. Um, And so I think it took us about six months to get it out the door Um, and, you know, made $31 our first month, grew it slowly just by listening to customers, understanding what people are trying to do. Um. You know, talking to customers is so foundational for the business, partly because we were the customers ourselves. So we really wanted to just, we just kind of, we just naturally had a lot of empathy for them. But also because neither one of us are GIS people, like we don't come from a geography background. And so people would ask us for things and we would genuinely ask, okay, can you walk us why you need to do that? Because we actually had no idea. Like neither one of us is a data scientist or, a GIS expert. Um, and so that has just sort of come out of the business from the very beginning. Um, I went full-time on it in 2017 and then, uh, Matias went full-time in 2018. So we are at, uh, I guess September will be Matias's three year full-time anniversary. So, so yeah. And it's just the two of us. Awesome. Awesome. And then you've, uh, you guys have moved recently too, right? Yeah, we moved to Denmark last summer. Matthias is originally from Denmark, um, and um, we decided to move back here last summer. So uh, now we have a farm, um, and it's it's it, you know it's kind of fun. Matthias is saying how once you know if he's like frustrated with coding, he can go out tractoring. And uh, just kind (laughs) of blow off some steam with that. I was just like picking raspberries earlier. Apparently, the this this where we moved to, they got like fifty kilos of raspberries last year. So wow, yeah, we (laughs) we spent like an hour a day in June picking strawberries. Um, so um, so yeah, that's been that's been uh, that's that's been a real change of pace, and it's been good for all of us. Okay, cool. Uh, so. Moving on to your book a little bit, so uh, what what caused you to write the book and and why now versus like I know you were a PM in the past, have a, an extensive history with with customer interviews, um, and have have an opinion on it as well in terms of you know just how to do them correctly and and yeah, so you know why did you write the book and 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 why now? I think it came out of a lot of questions I get from other founders. People, um, you know, know that we we are pretty heavy on customer feedback and think it's really important. And they ask me how to do it. 
And um, I would find myself just kind of – I felt like I was writing the same email over and over again where I was saying, okay, like here's how you get started. Like look at this book but only these chapters. This book is great but it's not really written for your situation so just kind of keep that in mind. This blog post is really good. I like these podcasts. Here's this worksheet. Like it felt very jumbled and it was also like – they would end up being like this five-paragraph email. Um, and actually last fall I was mentoring a group through Founder Summit which is a virtual community and conference that came out of a uh, calm company fund previously known as Ernest Capital. Um, and they were asking me all those questions too. And I just didn't felt like I, I didn't feel like I had one solid, like good place to send people that kind of wrapped everything up all together. Um, and it's funny because, you know, repeated manual work is a symptom of a need for a product. Mm. Um, and in this case, it ended up being that like I needed a book right. um, to be able to send people um, to feel like I was helping them. Because I just didn't feel like there, like there, there are books on customer interviewing, but a lot of them are written from the perspective of people who already have experience with it, who are user experience researchers or maybe product managers, like, and not from like a developer becoming a founder. Like they're just were they just were assuming so much knowledge and experience that I didn't like while they were really good books that I personally love and reference, I didn't feel like I could just recommend them to, you know, all these developer founders I know and feel like that like it had enough for them to get off the ground. Like the um for example, the how to talk so people will talk section of my book, which is this sort of in-depth walkthrough of all of the different ways you need to act in an interview in order to get someone to open up and share these useful nuggets with you. Um, there is a like one of my favorite books um, on research. I was reading it and it just had some like bullet points for how to act in an interview. It was like five bullet points. And I just remember reading it being like, I get this, but like that is not enough to take someone from zero to like running interviews like that like you just there's more explanation needed here um and so I think I remember like kind of like maybe I should write a book and then I was like that is a terrible terrible dangerous thought like that like no like (laughs) like do not do this to yourself because I had heard so many people talk about how lonely writing is and like I mean it's COVID like I, I who needs more loneliness at this point right so um, I was like, that's like, let's not do that. And I was like, you know what? I'll write a newsletter. That's the, it's, it could become a book if people like it, you know, maybe it'll become a book. But if they don't, I have, at least I have a central place for all of this stuff that I can just send people a link when they ask me these questions. And no matter what, like this, this is solving my problem and maybe other people will find it useful, but like at the very minimum, I will find it useful. Um, so I started with a newsletter at the end of February um, and then just had a lot of fun writing it. Um, had a rough draft by April. Uh, interviewed 30 people who had been reading the newsletter and the rough draft, which was like so much fun. Uh, so hectic, but so much fun. Um, feel like I rewrote the book basically every week in its entirety for the <laughs> months of May and June, which was maybe my least favorite part. Um, and then, yeah, as of a couple weeks ago, it's now available for purchase on Amazon. 
Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. So and thank you guys for supporting it, by the way, because you guys were very encouraging. I mean, it was awesome to see it all come out of you. It was really, it was really neat because, uh, yeah, I think we were at least early on in seeing those initial stuff, seeing your newsletter come out, and to which I have not subscribed, honest <laughs> thing here. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we've been we've been following along, we've been uh, contributing in in ways we can help. Um, but I really like the way you characterized the book and just saying the zero to one aspect of it, and I think that's like an important part that I feel the same way, like when I'm recommending books or different things, it's like, ooh, do this, but not that. Or it's always with exceptions or always with considerations, but read this first and you're just, your brain gets into hopefully the perspective of their brain and you're trying to like work it for them to get the most value. Um, but yeah, that, that you're, the section you mentioned, the how to talk, so people will talk. I mean, I think I've told you that was my favorite section. And that was the one that I just um, really enjoyed about it. And, you know, you get more into like, just, yeah, just like, it's almost like psychology elements of it, too. So yeah, yeah, yeah definitely pull from a lot of psychology, like, um, you know, throughout the book, kind of referencing um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who are uh, legends in behavioral economics and psychology of um, sort of economic consumer behavior. Um, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference, which is just a negotiation classic. Um, influence by uh, Robert Cialdini. Like just, yeah, some of these sort of concepts and just sort of things that people may already uh, be familiar with, but kind of packaging them for the specific context of solving business problems. Yeah. Right. What what I think is so neat about it is like a lot of the things that I've seen in your book are things that like we've had conversations about before. Like you've told me go read Chris Voss's book. Like you've told me how to how to get people to talk to you and like those kinds of things. So I think that's from my perspective, it's so cool to see this all packaged up nicely. <laughs> right. It's like you've got a I, Michelle I... package right there, and you don't have to call her. You don't have to have a schedule of Zoom. You don't have to whatever. It's like oh, I've got this little package of Michelle advice that to on tap this book sized right? version. Of yeah. Me. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you how valuable that is because I have asked Michelle so many questions over the years. So <laughs> book sized and look like and I looks like, like a duck mentally like Marie condoing myself, like, yeah, I was, there you like go. Just cleaning out my attic and it's like, Oh, look, this lamp is useful. Like that's basically what the newsletter is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you're you're talking a bit about developers and stuff like that. Um, did you did you really focus the book around like were you really thinking about developers when you wrote this, or was this more of a like they were one of many uh, kind of thing here? It started out very focused on developers and makers. I think that's just because that's sort of my core community that I'm part of, and most of the people that I talk to on a, a regular basis professionally. Um, but then as I especially as I was interviewing readers, I really realized that it was beyond that. Um, so the initial tagline, I think, was a practical guide to talking to customers for developers and makers, which is like extremely wordy. But like that was kind of what I was writing for initially. And then I started talking to people who were copywriters, who were um, technical writers, who were consult like strategy consultants, 
who were product leaders, who were marketing leaders, who were real estate agents, like just it's kind of like running the gamut. Um, And I think most of the examples in the book are from a software context. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've I've already had people suggest to me to like keep tabs on the stories that people tell me from outside of software. Um, Mm. And maybe there's, you know, a future edition or something, or maybe just even just like a slimmed down version of just the how to talk. So people will talk section. Um, That's, that's for those other contexts. It's sort of, yeah, it's been, it's been really surprising of all of the different uh, nooks and crannies people are popping out of that are, finding it useful it's <laughs> really, yeah. uh, really surprising well I think I think what's kind of neat about the the subject matter right like you're talking about like how to talk to people in a way that is like helping both of you right and I think that those are those are kind of universal truths like if you can figure that out for software like that's gonna work for so many other areas of your life right yeah I, and I guess it's sort of to note that like I don't feel like I'm really saying anything new. It's just the packaging of it that's new. Like, you know, I extensively cite um, other people throughout the book, you know, Brene Brown, especially like she's done so much research on empathy. Um, and and so it's kind of looking at all of it from from that perspective um, and, and basically sort of here's what you need to know for what you're trying to do. You know, I it, it sort of occurred to me that like, you know, nobody puts be more empathetic like on their to-do list, but they write, you know, write a landing page. And, and so I sort of have this goal of like, sort of, as you said, of like, you know, these ways of talking to people apply not just in business and in interviewing customers, but also in talking to your spouse, your kids, you know, to other people, to your coworkers, like whoever else in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I sort of have this like sneaky little like (laughs) ambition that like people will kind of notice how they talk and and because like empathy is a learned skill like some people whose parents were super into empathy may have learned as a child through that exposure but for most people definitely was for me it's a learned skill and way of talking and way of relating to people um and so yeah i have this sort of secret little ambition that people will apply it well beyond uh the context of of making software but yeah that's what's on their to-do list. So that's what I've started with. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that totally makes sense. You kind of, you kind of uh, hack that a little bit and be like, you know, <laughs> here, read, read my book, put that on your to-do list and this will help you. But, and I guess like, I think we, we all kind of tend to be over time, we kind of get a little bit selfish sometimes and we can kind of think just about ourselves and our own problems and to, to remember to have empathy for others and um, how that can help everyone is, is really good, good reminder. Um, what I thought was really neat in your book is you have a lot of examples and, um, I know I even made it into your book, which I thought was so cool. (laughs) Um, do you have any, uh, favorite example that you kind of like to share or talk about a bit? I don't think I could pick one. Um, I think it was, it was so fun to be able to pull so many different examples. Um, and I think you're actually in the book twice. Oh, yes. I wonder if... Do you actually, do you know the two places you're in? Yeah, I actually looked it up just before. Um, <laughs> I'll be truthful. I, 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 I had read your draft and so I hadn't uh, looked at the final copy yet. And so I got it on Kindle like, you know, half an hour ago and I was looking through it. <laughs> um, but I think one of the ones that um, I had uh, that um, 
where I'm in your book is about um, just having like a meeting really go sideways where you have expectations about how um, how a customer group is going to act and those customers just lose it on you. And it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do in this situation? Are we going to, you know, are we just going to tell them they've got to, you know, be okay with this? This is too bad. This is what's happening. Um, because, you know, really they're being quite combative right now. I don't really want to engage with them. Um, so like, what are we going to do in this situation? And, yeah. And uh, I mean, I think it was amazing how you turned that situation around and you did it just by, by listening to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's really the, the hard part sometimes, right? When you're being attacked or you feel like you're being attacked, um, that, you know, you, you ask, the, you ask the, the the diving deeper questions and you you make people feel heard and that sort of thing and I think you do a great job of getting into that like that especially that how people how to talk so people will talk like I feel like that's such a big part of your book you know it, I feel like when people talk about uh, human nature of being attacked you hear the terms fight or flight hmm. you don't hear sit down and listen to the bear right. <laughs> What does the bear really want? Like, maybe it doesn't want a human. Maybe it wants something else. Maybe it thinks you have its baby. Like, we yeah. don't hear that. We, we, we hear fight or flight. And I think when you're in a situation where someone is attacking you or they're mad or they're, you know, what, like whatever that is. And that, like this happens sometimes. It's how, how do you do? How do you diffuse that situation? You know, and, and I think the instinct can be like, how do I make this go away? Whether it's removing myself from the situation or just, you know, telling them to just shut up and take it. Um, but instead, I think what you did, and, and I want to know that you did this before we had, like, talked, like, like this, this was not the influence of my book that led you to do this. Like, this this was how you were, which, um, which I just love. Um, you sat down and you listened to them and say, okay, where is this coming from? Like, they're, they're not mad for no reason. Everybody has context. Mm-hmm. what is that context? And I mean, sometimes people just need to vent, but like sometimes if someone is angry, like the first thing they need is just to feel heard. And that's the only way they know how to express themselves. And sometimes it's not very constructive, but <laughs> you know, if you can kind of, I think as you, and which I loved about this example was you were like, this doesn't have anything to do with me or the software I built. This is their emotions. This is some other situation is going on that's getting projected onto this piece of software and like what is that other situation that is causing them to be so agitated by it yeah Um, yeah. and then discovering what it was and making them feel included in the process yeah and i think what's really key there and i think you talk about it a bit too is um just taking yourself out of the equation a bit like this is not like you just mentioned, it's not about, they're not necessarily mad at me. They are just angry on themselves by themselves. And they're angry, you know, because of whatever context they're in, they're frustrated about something. And it's, and it's, I'm in a position where I can help them and, you know, kind of debug this situation and, you know, ask, ask questions that will sort of tease that out. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess a lot of that is about sort of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to what you said earlier, you know, you said sometimes we can like think of ourselves first and think that we have caused things. And I think it's just much reminding that may- like maybe you did cause it like maybe you like, you know, 
accidentally hmm. deleted your database and you caused it, right? But like most of the time, there's something else going on. And if you remove yourself from that, try, try to see it from their perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of another part of your book that I thought was really interesting that um, some of our listeners might, who are you know kind of in the starting phases, might find interesting as well um, is how to how to sort of find people to talk to. Right? We've talked we've talked about how to talk to people, but like you know where do you where do you start in finding those people if you have nothing or if you have a customer base? How do you um, kind of work out that? Did did you want to maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it really depends on the context. Um, and I will say that if you don't have any users or customers yet, it's okay. You can still talk to people. You definitely should still talk to people. And you can go find them. Go find them what they're already talking about. So if you're trying to solve a problem, find people who are tweeting or posting on Reddit or Hacker News or Indie Hackers or what have you, um, who are complaining about that problem. Maybe they're complaining about a competitor or they're complaining about the process or whatever it is, if they're complaining, chances are they're they're willing to try something new to solve this problem, and it's enough of a problem for them um, that um, that, that they, they've got something to say about it. Um, and so go find those communities, whether it's Reddit or Facebook or somewhere else. Um, and then I have a bunch of templates um, in the book for reaching out to people and you could probably copy and paste those exactly, but I, I do suggest that people kind of, you know, modify and, and customize them. And basically the, the idea of having, you know, all of these templates and also scripts for talking to customers too is that it gives people something to get started with. That even if you feel like you have no idea what to ask, you have no idea what to say when you email a customer or, or what have you, you at least have something to start with. Um, it was really important to me that the book is as practical as possible and as actionable as possible. Um, and so trying to remove any of those barriers that people might have of like, okay, well, I know I should find people on Reddit, but I don't know what the post should say. So I have an example of a post and actually I, there's an example of a post that I made and one you made too. Um, so, so trying to just make that as easy for people as possible. Yeah, and I think that's something I really I really appreciate with how you structured things. Um, I know you're kind of rearranging things in the beginning and whatnot, but I think for anybody who hasn't read the book, like it's it's very much like here is the way I think about these concepts, and then it's like, and here is actually how some people have done this, and like here are some useful ways you could do it. I think that those examples and those stories are so valuable um, just to kind of drive home like, yeah, here's the theory, but like, here's how it actually works. Okay. One interesting thing I thought uh, was, well, actually, I, I was thinking about when going through your book and also knowing your previous experience with Geocodio, um, has your has your thought process changed? You know, you had, like I mentioned before, you had uh, you know, you've been a PM for a long time, you know, at other companies and things like that. And then, you know, how has your mindset on customer interviews changed through doing your experiences through Geocodio as a founder versus as a PM? Mm. I, I would say I didn't really learn about talking to customers and interviewing them, um, you know, until like, 
maybe like two years into my first like or a year or so into my first full-time PM job. Previously, it had all been sort of stuff on my own or like PMing as one of many different responsibilities. And so, so I didn't even really know it was an option to talk to people. And and this is something that I find when I when I talk to other people about this too, like people don't realize it's an option to ask their customers why they bought their product to give them ideas for what they should write on their headlines. Like people just don't realize that that resource is available to them and that their customers would want to talk to them. Um, and so in my early days of sort of part-time PMing, didn't talk to users at all. Um, and, and then kind of like very, very slowly got into it. But actually that experience with Geocodia was really formative for me because we were like, we, we, we genuinely did not know what all of the different use cases would be for this. You know, I sometimes say that geocoding is sort of like selling wood into the software industry, like everybody needs it. But that means that there's so many different ways that people use it that I couldn't possibly know all of them. Um, And so we were just getting feedback from people and then we would understand why they needed it and then we would like build stuff and then we would keep growing. And I was like, oh, wow, like wait, this whole like getting feedback from people thing like this works. Now you can't just go out and build absolutely everything they say. But if you've got 10 people who are asking for the same thing and they kind of tell you why you need it, then you've got something to go on. Um, And so from there, I became pretty active with trying to get feedback from customers as a PM. Um, You know, I was sort of the, I I was, I I would say I was a frequent flyer in the customer service department. I was in there every day, asking them, what are you hearing? You know, how can I help? I did I even did like feedback emails myself with with uh, users for onboarding. Like I became pretty active, but I still wasn't really having conversations with them. And it wasn't until I got the opportunity to learn under um, an experienced user researcher who basically has a PhD in this and then a, a design leader who knew how to talk to users that I really started to get it. And then I was able to transform that into insights that we could use in our roadmap and build products and like that was it, it was just relevatory for me as a product manager. Um, and so when I went full time on Geocodio, one of the first things I wanted to do was talk to our customers and make that a regular part of our process. And um, and I, I don't think we would have gotten where we are today had interviewing our customers and, and listening to them been such an integral part of our process. And you know, sometimes I have thought, like, is that, like, unusual, like, that we're so driven by that? And and one of my favorite examples that sort of runs as a common thread throughout the book um, is, is the Stripe um, experience with customer interviewing and how it's an integral part of their process, too, and how the Collison brothers needed this themselves in the very beginning and were personally replying to feedback emails. And I sort of learned that um, – interviewing uh, Theodora Chu, who is, a, who is a product manager for Stripe, who I interviewed for the book. And and I was like, oh, like that, wait, that's, that's our story too. Like, um, and I mean, it was just enormously validating for me to hear that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we, we would have gotten where we are without that. And so for me as a PM, it's been, it's been so valuable. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know it had that much of an integral part to the the growth, the growth of Geocodio, especially, you know, once you coming on full time and essentially 
deploying <laughs> interviewing, <laughs> deploying customer interviewing as essentially as a, I mean, I don't want it to sound graphic, but like as a weapon within that, just to, to, to really pull the business forward and to tool. Okay. Much better, yeah. much better. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that, and, and the Stripe example is another good one. I could think of like other ones that I'm sure like people at Notion or any of these ones that are a broad use case. And yet like that's the PM's job, right? Is to find the stories or find the jobs to be done, find the, the nuances of that. And then obviously business decisions on, okay, do we maybe such and such niche is too small, but if you have a broad solution set or a, that can be applied to many different things, I mean, this is super critical. Not to say it isn't critical in other businesses. Some of them start in in a niche, like Referral Rocks is very much in a niche, and we get we get important information from customer inter- customer interviews, um, at least a lot from our CS people that are working hands on with them. They probably could learn more on direct customer interviews, and I plan on sending the book out to a few of them as well. But um, but I can see how it just it does add extreme like leverage in those situations and is is almost a competitive advantage if you can do that or if you're willing to do that. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. I I strongly agree. I think it is an advantage for companies to interview their customers and you know that so so they've done studies of people with an MRI scanner of when they're talking about themselves to another person or experiences they've had and all these parts of the brain related to pleasure and enjoyment and connection light up when they're talking about themselves more so than when they are hearing someone else talk about their own experiences and i have noticed that the people that i interview tend to be become our most vocal supporters which as a small company that you know doesn't spend anything on on advertising is extraordinarily useful for us but also even for a big company like i mean i remember when stripe came out everyone was so excited about it because it was like this is a company that like gets it and like this thing that was super painful before like now these people get it and they get what makes something easy for us and people were so excited about it and shared it even if they're a funded company that had money for advertising um, they didn't really need it because people were so excited about having a product that understood them and what they were trying to do and made that easier. Um, and, and, and I think it's, you know, you always have to weigh things against business value, right? Like one of the frameworks I present in the book is from sort of product expert, Marty Kagan, who is sort of like the product leader, um, which is valuable, viable, usable, and feasible, which is basically the four components that make a product work. And, um, you know, the, the product has to be valuable to the user and it has to be usable by them, right? Like it has to be something that they need to do and they have to be able to figure out how to use what you've built. It has to be, um, feasible for you to be able to build. And it also has to be viable as a business. And so whenever you're hearing things from users, I would sort of run it through that of like, you know, is what they're asking like feasible for us to build, um, and would it be valuable for us as a business? Customers can tell you what would what would be valuable for them and what would be usable for them, but they can't tell you those other two. And similarly, I don't know what would be valuable or usable um, for the user. So it's a sort of a conversation between you of of what you know might be a good opportunity, but everything has to be weighed against you know other other factors. I think it's something I'm always 
keen to stress is that it doesn't mean that you're sort of just taking literal marching orders from your customers and just doing literally whatever they say. That's not <laughs> going to work out. You have to apply your own judgment that has probably served you very well in your life and as an entrepreneur so far. Interesting. I love that. Um, it, it does make me think, you know, you customer interviews, at least the concept of it, at least in our circles, I feel like does seem pretty prevalent uh, in terms of this is not that everyone does them, but everyone at least knows about them. Um, where I think that's due to the mom test. Like, okay. I feel like I have to like shout out to the mom test because of that, because um, I feel like, you know, when I was interviewing people who were reading my book, like so many people cited that book as the book that made the light bulb go off hmm. of like, oh, like talking to people is an option. Interesting. I could get something out of it. Oh, but I'm probably doing it very wrong if I've already tried it. Um, and sort of in so many ways, I feel like my book is sort of the like 201 level of the mom test where, you know, if like the mom test is like step one and then like there's like these academic tomes on activity theory or like step 10, my book is like step two, step three. And like the other books written sort of from a user experience perspective are like step six. So it's like very much in that like intro um, phase. But yeah, as you said, I think I think because of the mom test, people people know it's something that they should do. Maybe they haven't done it, but like they get that it's something that should be part of their toolbox. And I think some people need a little more help. Um, and especially also with the, I think the mom test really focuses and does a good job on um, figuring out what you should build in the first place. Um, and so I feel like I'm kind of just building on that with, you know, how do I stop churn? You know, what else should I build next? You know, all those other kinds of questions that people might have. Cool. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I'd never read the mom test. <laughs> um, I think I'm a little on the outside of some of these circles. Um, but the one that got it for me was actually years ago. If you remember like the lean startup movement, all of that type mm -hmm. of thing. And then even a book that is much harder to read, but before that was uh, like The Four Steps to the Epiphany. I don't know yeah. if you... So, and those were the ones for me, like that message taking away from The Four Steps to the Epiphany, like one line by Steve Blank was just like, get out of the office, which is mm -hmm. like... And I think at that time, in the lean startup time, it, you know, post uh, Web 1.0 and all of those other things, people were just... It was the build that they will come. Like everyone was just like, get on the internet, build 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 your stuff they will they will find you type of thing and then obviously the the downturn had this flip and everyone started thinking more lean thinking more and that was the biggest message for me out of that was just like you you know get off your visionary high horse and actually go see if it lands with people you can have one but then actually go and find out or find out maybe it's not where it started like for you which is interesting which with doing your um your app to find what was it to find what was your first app again? What were to you to find grocery stores? Gro grocery stores, store. right? Yeah. So, like that was your first thing, but then you know where you found gold or found oil in those in that field was on the on the geocoding, which was which is which was interesting. I don't I don't. When did you actually? Is your other app still exist? Even no, no. I think we sunsetted it about a year into geocoding, maybe. And I, you know, it's so interesting you talk about the history of this. Because I think the the technology has changed too and made things so much more possible. Like in the 90s, 
to even run a usability test on a product would cost thousands of dollars. You had to, you know, rent a usability lab. Like, like it was very expensive to do this. Even making long distance phone calls was expensive in the nineties. Um, like, I don't think that really came down until the early two thousands, if I remember correctly. Um, and, um, speaking from a U.S. perspective, of course. Um, but then, you know, with, with, I don't, I don't remember when like video chat really came about. I don't, I don't remember when Skype launched, but like to be able to, you know, basically have a phone call with someone on the other side of the world for free, you know, time zone allowing, like that is a very new thing. Like mm-hmm. maybe in the past 10 years, uh, maybe 15 for people who who um, adopted that technology early. And so that makes talking to customers so much easier. And in a way that if you started a company 20 years ago, you probably would not have started out with, you know, virtual usability sessions and, and interviews and everything because it just wasn't, it wasn't as possible. Um, and, and, and so that's, I think, something I, I sort of keep in mind that, you know, like video chat especially is making so many things possible and the normalization of it too, right? Because even if Skype was around, it wasn't necessarily like a sort of something that everybody would have used versus now because of COVID, you know, pretty much everybody knows how to use Zoom or FaceTime. Um, And I don't think it it had that kind of mass consumer adoption, um, certainly not 10 uh, or, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, that that has definitely jumped the shark. That barrier for being able to get my mom on Zoom and for someone to interview her about something uh, related to a product could happen. You know, a, a year yeah. or so ago, it would have been like, "What is Zoom?" <laughs> right, you would have had to like, you know, like there's one of my favorite books, um, "Interviewing Users" by Steve Portugal. Like he talks about flying out to meet with users in person, which is so incredibly valuable to like really sit down with someone and understand them in their environment, even if they're using a piece of software, you know, to be able to understand that they're trying to use it, but also someone is tapping on their shoulder and there's noise because it's an open office and like there's other stuff going on. Like that's really valuable. But to fly out and meet with users in person and spend a whole day shadowing them is really expensive, both for the customer for their time, but also for the company. And so but now you can just screen share with someone and you don't necessarily have to be in the office with them. And if you can screen share with them and then you can also interview them, you can kind of patch a lot of that together. Not 100%, but certainly to the extent that you can still get a lot out of it. Um, and, and, and it really be, is, is much more democratized than it was. Awesome. So rounding up a little bit, trying to pull on this thread of like how the world or how at least product and development and software, I feel like, like we said, at least understands the concept of customer interviews, whether they're doing them or not, you know, is a different different case and a different story. But pulling this back to your book and saying, you mentioned other people uh, getting value out of the book, you know, real estate agents, other ones. I mean, is there a future franchise of like, deploy empathy for x and so like the for dummies books and now all of a sudden you have this deploy empathy for real estate agents deploy empathy for financial advisors where you're just swapping out a couple chapters or rewording things is that uh then maybe that ties into your whole master secret not so secret plan <laughs> of uh 
teaching empathy to to more people. What do you think of that? I don't know. I, you're the first person to suggest that. Um, and, you know, so I've kind of thought about this, how I don't know how I feel about becoming uh, an empathy expert. Like, I, I feel this weird pressure of it because no one can be empathetic all the time. Um, you know, it's a, it's very important to give empathy, but also to be able to receive it as well. Um, but also, you know, I, I don't want to be the empathy police at the same time. Like there's been a couple of times where people have, like sent me things. It's like, uh, you know, like, um, yeah, they're basically sort of criticizing people for a lack of empathy. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like being empathy police is very unempathetic. Uh, and I don't want to be <laughs> in that role. And I also don't like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be telling people how like you know no I like I want to give them space for their own interpretation of things and, and recognize that how they do things has its own validity to it uh I so I probably would not come in and say here is you know empathy for real estate agents and <laughs> empathy for financial services and whatnot um I think if I it would probably be a you know an exercise of interviewing lots of different people in those fields and kind of pulling it together it was here how you might do it um but I don't I don't know. I mean, I think having a sort of pamphlet version of just the how to talk so people will talk. I think that's kind of interesting to me um, in the more near future. I am definitely thinking about. I am definitely thinking about doing an audiobook, which I'm really excited for as a podcaster myself. I just genuinely enjoy um, audio. Um, I, I really enjoy it. I was, I was a radio DJ in high school and college. So, um, it's just, it's just super fun for me. Um, and so that's kind of what I have my sights on right now. Um, and I'm excited to launch that as a private podcast. Um, so again, just like the newsletter sort of doing it bit by bit, um, you know, cause the thought of recording a whole audiobook is sounds like a lot, but just recording a podcast episode is just, you know, a podcast. So um, I don't know. Who who awesome. knows where this is going to take us? I've sort of I've started pulling the the thread on the sweater and let's see how it unravels. <laughs> That's what I love about it. You're very iterative and you're very like, "Hey, I am doing this for X in this phase and then we'll see what that builds upon and then I'll I'll tell you when I get to that next step and see what happens." So, um, yeah, I I wasn't just to 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 comment back. I wasn't suggesting you'd be the master empathy for everything. I was actually just thinking of repurposing your book in the, in the customer interviews, bring the idea of customer interviews and the empathy side piece with it to, to these industries that probably aren't talking enough to their people, like how many real estate agents ask about their experience versus just, um, hey, can I get a referral? Or hey, uh, you know, do you have any friends that are also selling a house or things like that? So right. anyway, but... Um, yeah, no, I, I know what you you sort of just sort of touched on something I've sort of <laughs> and now it's, now it's thought fine. about but haven't vocalized. But yeah, awesome. I think there I mean there are uses well beyond software. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, even so like a friend of mine ordered the book and I was like, Oh, like you like you really didn't have to. Like it's probably not very relevant to you. Like she's a um a tenant advocate for a major city. And she was like, no, this will be so helpful as I, you know, I talk to people and understand like what's going on and like how we can help them better. And I was like, okay, I mean, you know, like 
if, if you're willing to like take the risk on it and sort of going into it, knowing that the examples are from a totally different industry, but you want to extrapolate that out, like I, I'm game for that. I guess I just, I want to manage people's expectations and I would rather manage them very low <laughs> rather than be like, everybody can use this right. and it is going to right. be relevant to every single person. Right. Um, yeah, I think it could be because I had some also a friend who is an architect who I was telling about it the other day who was also excited about how they could use it. So I don't know. I guess, you know, if those people kind of come out of the woodwork and, and have interesting stories, then that could be something. I don't know what that something is, but mostly I'm just really excited to hear those stories because my favorite part of customer interviews is learning unexpected things and um, I just, I just genuinely find that thrilling and, um, to then be able to interview people who have read my book and learn these things about how they're using it is just, just, uh, just so absurdly satisfying for me. Like that just feels like the pinnacle of achievement to have, you know, someone say that it helped them. Right. Yeah. And I think this is just like the pinnacle of, of you right there in that statement too, of like, <laughs> of just like, you're doing this to really get back and really, truly, you're one of the people, one of, I think Nate and I would both say like one of our favorite people to just talk to and listen to and stuff too, just because Aww. it's, you're just very altruistic by nature. And just, I think, again, if people want to hear more from Michelle, um, obviously pick up her book. Uh, there's probably a ton of value just in the packaging itself for anyone, like even that chapter, I think is worth, worth it and can be applied. Like you met, you know, gave possible use cases based off of friends you already have that have, have that want to apply your book. Um, so where else can, uh, people, people find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter where I probably spend too much time, um, at MJW Hansen. Uh, my book is called Deploy Empathy. Um, it's on Amazon. You can also um, buy a PDF, deployempathy.com. I also co-host a podcast called Software Social. So if you're interested in kind of the backstory of how the book newsletter and stuff came about, um, you can um, go listen to that. Um, and then I also, yeah, I also uh, write the newsletter also called deploy empathy which and a link to that is also from the deploy empathy website awesome well thank you very much for coming on uh our podcast today thank you so much for having me thanks for joining us today if you enjoyed our podcast please share with a friend we're new to this podcasting thing and we'd love to hear what you have to say tweet us at searching for sass on twitter that's searching the number four SAS or send an email to searchingforsass at gmail.com. See you next week.